Hello, podcast listeners. You have found your way to another action-packed edition of Wank and Review. This is your host and I'm Canadian, Larry Parsons. And with my regular guest, Lee Beckman, we're going to do another Director Masterclass episode. But interestingly, in spite of the fact that these films are all done by great filmmakers, none of these movies are what we call essential. In fact, I'm going to call them the inessentials. So we're doing a weird list here, and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope if you have feedback to send me, you could do that at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website's rankinreview.ca. And please tell your friends about the show. If you've listened to the show before, you should go in knowing, as usual, there will be spoilers, and there will be coarse language. But that's how we do. Thank you for listening to Rank and Review. Let's get to it. <laughs> Welcome to another enthusiastic, fun-filled, and educational episode of Rank No Exit. And yeah. <laughs> um, our, our regular guest and uh, sometime champion, who knows, where this is, this is going to be a, 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 yeah. a, an episode to be dropped in the future. Yeah. And for a very specific reason. Yeah. As much as this is a horror movie director masterclass episode, yes. I think that a fitting subtitle would be Non-Essentials. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. We have six movies from yep. six interesting directors. Yeah. Uh, but not all necessarily hitting at peak form. A lot of yeah. these are like little baby, just sort of figuring things out movies. Yeah. And the horror genre is one of the more easy ones to turn a profit on. Yes. So uh, a lot of legit filmmakers will start in either, you know, skin flicks or horror flicks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you'll have heard of a lot of these directors. Oliver Stone, Wes Craven, Francis Ford Coppola, John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people that we know. Anybody heard of James Cameron? Yes. Yeah, right? yeah. But, like, there's a lot of real big names here, Yeah. but the movies aren't big. But yeah. I think it's interesting for movie nerds like you and I, and presumably mm. somebody who looked at this list and included Deadly Friend and said, yes, I want to fill my ears with that. <laughs> it's, it's for a very niche-specific audience. It's for horror completists. It's for, you know... I think the subtitle of this episode, of this episode should be In the Beginning. Yes. <laughs> because a lot of these are sort of like, this is their first little baby films. This is They're learning here. Yeah. Uh, and so we, 
a lot of times when it's director master classes, say I'll, you'll be probably hard on them. Yeah. In this case, uh, I'm well. I'll be hard on some of them. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but like, uh, uh, I'm gonna use softer touch do yeah. this. But usually, in a given episode of Rankin Review, there'll be a few movies where I would say, if you like the genre, you should get around to watching it. Yeah. And sure, if you're curious to check out Dementia Thirteen, yep, feel free. But it is not essential. It's not something that you need to see. Right? I think really this is like for completists. Yeah, is really the kind of the, the you know the general theme of this movie is like if you are a nerd uh, completist where you need to see all of the filmmakers' um, art. Yeah, then this is an episode for you. Yeah, and, and again because this is the one where it's a bit of an endurance test. Like some of these films are like are unique disasters. Or, you know, they're like films with training wheels. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, this is seeing, you know, very talented film auteurs. <laughs> uh, or who would someday become auteurs. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that, like I was talking with Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. This is pretty easy. This 1960s Roger Corman produced mm-hmm. ultra cheapy. Yeah. yeah, we can take pot shots at this. But a few years ago, he made an utterly confounding and pretentious vampire movie called Twigs. Never saw it. Which I think could also be on this list of like, really? like what was going on? Yeah. Only uh, that movie doesn't have the excuse to be at the beginning of his career. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we can talk a little bit about where they went from here, uh, the ups and downs of their careers, and yes, we'll, we'll we'll talk about some movies that are interesting, if inessential. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to say by way of introduction before we get into this? Uh, you know, I, not, not too much. Glad to be back. Mm-hmm. Good to be here. Um... The crown is still mine. Hopefully. I, yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> I was sort of thinking, you know, I can't believe I had this much time and energy to think about this. Was we should get like a belt for like the current <laughs> champion, <laughs> and you know the kind of that sort of like spins in the middle. But instead of like that, you know, the WWE icon, we can get some sort R&R. of like, yeah, maybe something like that. That's what I sort of th- sort of thinking is that. You, so whoever like is the current. It's passed down this belt. There, well, there should be. I'll, I'll melt down that gold statue of myself and, and there you go. make it into a belt for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, who knows? Like yeah. I say, uh, we're we're kind of seeding this episode. This is going to yeah. be one that will drop sometime in the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe you're the champion. Maybe you're not. I know. But at the time of this recording, out of respect. Are in our champion Lee Beckman. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. There you the go. six movies that we are going to be talking yep. about today are from Neil Jordan, The Company of Wolves. I think that's yep. the only one that I didn't mention in the introduction already. Yep. From James Cameron, Piranha yep. Two: The Spawning. Yep. From Oliver Stone, The Hand. From John Carpenter, Someone's Watching Me. Yeah. From Wes Craven, Deadly Friend. Woof. And we'll finish it out with... What are we finishing it out with? What did I miss? Uh, you've got... I can't believe you Prana 2. You've got The Hand. You've got Deadly Friend. You've got Someone's Watching Me. 
You've Company of Wolves. Company of Wolves. Oh, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> We're unprofessional. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this, we watch for this, podcast? this is embarrassing. Oh, wow. This has not started well. I had them all out. Don't you, don't you dare say Apocalypse. We just talked about it. We just oh, talked about five Oh, this of is embarrassing. Where is my short term watching with It's not. <laughs> <laughs> All the attack of the killer tomatoes. Dementia 13 was the one we did. Oh, mention. wow. <laughs> so the six movies that we're going to talk about, about are... Here we go. Dementia 13 hmm. from Francis Ford Coppola. Thank you. From Neil Jordan, The Company of Wolves. Yada. From John Carpenter, Someone's Watching Me. Somebody's Watching Me. From Oliver Stone, The Hand. Yep. From Wesley Craven. Deadly he's Wesley now. <laughs> he's reached that level of comfort really where he's Wesley. And of course, Piranha 2 The Spawning yeah. from James Cameron. We managed to remember all six of the movies. I'm so proud of us. I'm so time. proud of us. <laughs> Sleek. Fierce. Savage. Deadly. The Piranha. centuries nature's most ferocious killer until now the new breed is here faster more ferocious and infinitely more deadly piranha 2 tremendous jaw pressure it's sheared cleanly through bone in places it's here it's alive and it's multiplying we spliced in genes from different species to create the ultimate killer organism it lives in the depths of the sea but it can strike anywhere Look, you know I love Piranha. Yeah. And I know you love Piranha. Yeah. I'm not as big on Piranha 2 The Spawning, but I think you'll find that I'm not going to be as hard on Piranha 2 The Spawning <laughs> as I am on maybe some of the other movies. As well as you shouldn't, actually. <laughs> um, it's another one of these things where you would say to somebody, is it a good movie? No. Yeah. Is it an entertaining movie? Yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It holds your attention. It's goofy. It's stupid. It's kind of sleazy, and it's kind of amazing that it's directed by the guy who would go on to bring us Titanic and Avatar. Well, I'm, I'm gonna just just stop you right there and sort of do a little course correction for you. Um, part of the reason why this film is the way it is. Uh, this Cameron actually only did about two and a half weeks of shooting on the film before he got fired. Oh, there you go. Uh, to and I and I'll just skip skip to this quote, if you will. Here, here was the man doing a answering a question about Piranha Two. I was replaced after two and a half weeks by the Italian producer. He just fired me and took over, which is what he wanted to do when he hired me. It wasn't until much later that I even figured out what had happened. It was like, oh man, I thought I was doing a good job, but when I saw what they were cutting together, it was horrible. And then the producer wouldn't take my name off the picture because contractually they couldn't deliver it with an Italian name. So they left me on no matter what I did. I had no legal power to influence him from P Pomona, California, where I was sleeping on a friend's couch. I didn't even know an attorney. In actual fact, I did some directing on the film, but I don't feel it was my first movie. 
Well, we'll call this some learning the leg training wheels. Yes. And there's he he obviously I would assume made a connection with uh, Lance Henriksen. Yes. I don't think it's a you know coincidence that he worked with him repeatedly after. Yes. That. I would be surprised if that was the case, but yeah, um, yeah, right out of the gate, I guess we don't have, we can't be overly hard on James Cameron as much as I would like to at this point yeah. in time. So I guess uh, it is kind of sleazy in a way that mm-hmm. the, they would do that to him and uh, then intentionally make a cheesy, schlocky movie and put someone else's name on it. That's mm-hmm. bad form at the very least. Yes, the, the producer's name, by the way, is Ovidio G. And, and, Anisatanitz. I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly. Yeah, yeah. I think the accent makes you a little racist. But that's okay. <laughs> so, so, so can we go burn some crosses now, Larry? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, when when uh, the Italian producers are involved, and yeah. I don't want to be indelicate. This is my turn to be racist. Okay. But especially in this day and age exploitation films were just a quick buck for yeah. them. And they're not taking it too seriously personally. Mm-hmm. This was the next one. Right? Yeah. This is nobody's favorite movie, and it's one of the rare occasions where I kind of get the feeling like nobody was passionate yeah. about yeah. this movie. Well, it even looks like one of those exploitation Italian movies, like just the aesthetic of it, the color, the sound, the music. It feels very much like those uh, giallo or... Um, those are zombie films yeah. uh, over. On so. a bare bones, what are we requiring? We're requiring sex and yeah. gore. And in the first yeah. five minutes of the movie, we are given, given exactly, exactly that. that. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're following their own rules, uh, and I guess that we can have some limited respect for. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get to the plot itself, the location has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the ocean. It's no longer like in, um, inland, you know. So mm-hmm. the piranhas have somehow made it to the ocean. But a, a vast school of carnivorous super piranhas isn't good enough. These piranhas can fly out of the air. <laughs> and they got like like forever permafrown. That's the sort of beautiful thing about these fish. They can live inside a human's body, like the corpse of a human being. There's a ridiculous <laughs> scene where a nurse gets like an alien pop scare out of this corpse. This fish jumps yep. out of it and bites her neck. Yep. And I described that and it sounds totally stupid, but I have yeah. to admit that I laughed out loud when it happened. Yeah. Now I don't know if the movie wanted me to laugh out loud at that point. See, the, the, this is did. when I sort of ask because the, the, the script was... Is uh, basically, well, it's under H. A. Milton, but that—that's the ghost name for Cameron. Basically, Anasatonis. I'm—I'm saying this wrong. Okay, you don't have to do the accent. I'm not doing—I'm not doing it anymore. It just, it's just coming <laughs> out then, y'all. It's just coming out that way. It's the same way I've when got I got these friends, Tony, Grace, and then Tony. Uh, Tony. <laughs> it, it, it's just happening. I can't control it. It's a problem. All right. So this is how a Western is going. A Western man from. I can stand that. <laughs> All right. Hooked on phonics worked for me, okay? I didn't want to sound like... <laughs> All right. Asanotis. I mean, do it, like, phonetically. It's going to sound like asanotis, like it's a weird viral infection. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I'm going... Ah, never mind. <laughs> Anyways. The Italian dude said... <laughs> <laughs> that Italian guy there. <laughs> a little more politically right. Or, like, never... Uh, anyways, Ovidio. Stop it. Ovidio? Is, is that how you want to do it? Ovidio G. Asantis. Thank you. Asantis? See, at least can you, can you at least Asantis. understand my struggle of trying to say that name but phonetically? 
A video Exactly. So when you have to say, it's like Ennio Morricone. There's this weird music that we're choosing to put to this. This might be more interesting than talking about Piranha 2, but I think we should maybe <laughs> get back get to Piranha 2. <laughs> but you have to leave this in. <laughs> Anyways, the I'm bridge- so time wore on. <laughs> this feels like a Monty Python skit already. Or say these something that Tom Stubbard would start to write. Okay, so this Italian guy named Ovidio. Uh, he eventually took over the project and I think all along probably wanted it. Um, this is their script, but I kind of wonder if some of the decisions that uh, Ovidio made was like that, that whole fish staying in that body for that long. It just seemed like such an exploitative idea that makes no sense whatsoever and some of that Cameron probably would not... I kind of feel like the sleaze and the sex in the movie. That's yeah. one of the things that's interesting, interestingly absent from all of James Cameron's movies. Yeah, is sex. Sex doesn't seem to exist in his world. That Terminator. Much. I guess there is a sex in Terminator, but again, in that case, Avatar. it was a necessity of the plot. Yeah, uh, because he had to father. Yeah, the yeah, it, it's not quite. Yeah, but he's not known for bringing the heat. Is yes. guess what I'm trying to say. Yes, and these scenes aren't shot particularly, you know, amazingly. They're like. If we've got the nipples in frame, then it's in focus. Yeah, we're yeah, good to yeah, go. Right? Yeah, yes. Those are the things where I can tell this is not a steady hand. And again, I mm-hmm. feel that Italian exploitation is just like, do we got it? We got it. Moving yeah, on. Yeah. There's not. We don't care. We don't care. Yeah. Uh, and so you got these weirdly, strangely high quality, you know, like the helicopter sequence yeah. is ludicrous. Like he abandons his helicopter, jumps into the ocean, yeah. and the helicopter crashes and explodes into yeah. the water. And it's a stupid like thing, but it's professionally executed when yes. they do it. And yeah. it stands out because very few things in the movie seem professionally executed. The script, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's even more a ripoff of Jaws than the first one is. I mean, this one t- takes place at a bloody resort. And I swear to God, like, the the owner of the uh, resort at one point is almost wearing a Murray Hamilton jacket. Yeah. I could be wrong on that, but it was like, hey, wait a second. But... Um, the the supporting characters are are not they're not even like real characters they're sort of like avatars with sort of like human condition emotions a lot of runtimes dedicated to this fucking um, veterinarian and this terrible girl who yeah. wants to sleep with a doctor but settles for the veterinarian yeah why are these people in the movie what yeah. purpose do they serve yeah. Uh, it's not even a sort of like real human behavior. It's just sort of, and we keep going back to them. Yeah, and like you know, I, like I'm on team homicidal fish when yeah. it starts coming. Please and I, kill these people. Yeah, and I, but I think that's almost by design. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They're but, also like, it is a sequel to Piranha, but I don't feel it's a sequel that has much respect or or put much thought into the original movie or connective mm-hmm. tissue at all. And, like, these winged piranhas that fly out and go right for the throat in the jugular vein. Yeah. Like, I, I could say that's ludicrous, but I mean, yeah. obviously that's ludicrous. But yeah. why that choice? And why no explanation for that choice? Yeah. Instead, it's like, here's these two hot chicks and they're total bitches. So we yeah. know that they're going to die. Yeah. Oh, and let's make sure we see their boobs before that happens. Yeah. Check, check, and check. All yeah. right. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Lance Henriksen 
feels, and Trisha O'Neill, I guess, feel mm-hmm. like the only authentic characters in the movie. Well, that and their son. Although it's a really weird choice, and it, it, it and it's, I'm sure it's done intentionally. But the mother son relationship is got this really weird vibe to it in the first scene, and I'm sure it was just done to be distracting. But like they're literally like hugging each other, holding each other like this. Obviously, he's trying to show a sign of intimacy. Uh, like not like sexual intimacy but like mother son but it registers as when you say like this they're yeah. just sort of like hanging limply over each yeah. other but then the dialogue could be interpreted either, either way Yeah, I'm sure it's done just for exploitive, exploitive take but it's one of those weird things that makes this whole stew as I would call it of just, I think I know what you mean, but I'm yeah. not sure that it was as deliberate as maybe you're giving them credit for. In my experience, if an Italian exploitation movie wants to press yeah. a nerve, yeah. they'll just jump right up and down well, on it. Well, you know? Yeah, they won't subtly hint at it. They'll yeah, be, but it's not Mom subtle. Mom and son will be macking out. They yeah. won't have their arms around each other. They'll it's not subtle. Like, and I'm <laughs> sure it was just one of those weird choices either done by the director or even the actors as a lark, even. Yeah. But it's just one of those weird little tidbits in the movie that that, that is Piranha Two. Yeah. There's a lot of weird bizarre things that I wouldn't want to call this film like a cult classic but it's still obviously around well it's sort of like check off the cliches right yeah Lance Henriksen's best friend the, the the black dude who's blowing up fish with dynamite yeah everything that's established in that scene would basically tells us about the rest of the movie yeah Lance Henriksen's friend who kills fish with dynamite is yeah. going to supply us with how we're going to deal with our problem at the end <coughs> yeah and of course because he is black and because he's the best friend of the main character, yeah. this man is so doomed yeah. and absolutely check and absolutely well, check. He was doomed when his son was died. Yeah, so. but that character. Yeah. Like, when we meet him, he's exploding fish with dynamite. Yeah. How are they going to deal with the fish at the end of the movie? Yeah. Dynamite. Yeah. yeah Who yeah, is yeah, this yeah. character? Yeah, 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 what yeah, is yeah, his yeah, purpose yeah. in the movie? Like, if you watched any other movies ever you'll know where this is going yeah. it's the kind of obvious cliche that people actively avoid because of how obvious a cliche is yeah. but if you want to play cliche bingo <laughs> you can do that with this movie yeah. and it is kind of amusing for that Yeah. again where I started at the beginning of it, is that good? well I don't think I can honestly say that's good yeah. but I kind of had fun watching it yeah. and there are Worst movies on this list. They just are. There no are harder watches on yeah. this list. No, like, Piranha Two ends up being one of those uh, to, like late night drive-in movie movies that would play well at eleven o'clock at night, and yeah. you'd have a good time at all the stu- stupidity that you're seeing on the screen. Um, it delivers the goods and the sex and the violence, I will say, and even you know the good old fish homicide. It's it's that nice little mix. It's an is yeah. what it is movie, and I guess the big twist is the flying piranha yeah but let's all just take a moment to think oh video <laughs> you can't even say it now without no, even the... I, I did that deliberately i know <laughs> but like just just try and say it normally try is, is there anything else that we want to try to say about this messy movie this uh, has been about as messy as the movie yeah the film is a lot of fun it's <laughs> it's a great cheesy time it's by no you know ways war and peace but hey Piranha 2, The Spawning. Uh, no, I think that's about it. How does it feel? Like they're still there. My fingers. I've been moving. You'll have phantom feelings for years. Heat, irritation, pain. Your memory is still feeding familiar sensations of having a hand along your nerve endings. What have you been doing during these blackouts? 
misplacing things. I'd be scared if I were you. Did you see my signet ring? No. Are you all right? Oh, yes. You never know what you can do. The unconscious is capable of anything. You could do anything you ever dreamed of and never had the guts to do. Hi. I like the way you look at me. Blackouts are nothing to fool with. You could kill somebody. Ah! It's all up there. And you'll never know. Know what? Who you are. <laughs> Don't be afraid of the pain. Hey! Tell him what you're feeling. You're trying to kill me, aren't you? Sense it, feel it, touch it. You want to destroy me? What is your image? A man trapped in a nightmare. So, in 1981, it wasn't just Piranha 2 The Spawning that hit the theater. Was, was Piranha 2 81? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, and right. so is Oliver Stone's The Hand. Hand. Yes. It's interesting. I just have the IMDb open on it, and it says, as the you know little description of the plot yeah. a comic book artist loses his hand yeah. which in turn takes on a murderous life of its own yeah. I think that there should be a three word sentence to follow that up do you guess what that is? no go for it or does it? <laughs> question <laughs> dun, dun. I mean because that is the movie yeah so that description is the movie yeah yeah um, and there's a, there's some good and bad things to be said about that. I think yeah. I told you when I watched it, my two big takeaways were I didn't quite get the Michael Caine as the romantic lead. I think he's a great actor, but I don't... Okay, quite... but he's supposed to be more an everyman character. Like, Anyways, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's just... It, it, Again, and we'll talk about it more specifically, his actual behaviors in the movie, but yeah. I feel like the movie is treating him like a romantic, heroic lead, but his character is not particularly heroic or romantic at yeah. all. Uh, that might be more character than it yeah. is Michael Caine, but we, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> I saw him more as a tragic figure, but yes. Uh, I think that we have an even tougher version of what I have called in the past the Chucky problem in this movie. Okay. When you have an adversary that is that small and yeah. of that little substance and weight yeah how do you make it like threatening threatening and scary and not just silly and ridiculous yeah and i think it's to the movie's credit yeah that they come closer to scary than to ridiculous most of the time yes but it is a really really out there premise that is and the, there yeah. is no bit of wink to this yeah it is 100 percent straight face stony yeah, serious. It's an yeah. Oliver Stone movie. Yeah, this is an they Oliver Stone it slumming it. This yeah. is written and directed by Oliver Stone, yeah. and he's making a horror movie. Yeah, is it a good one? It's an interesting one. I I, I kind of sort of uh, I sort of thought this this is a film that even when when it was released in eighty one that was pretty much out out of its time. It, it comes from a different time and different place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's you know in the nineteen thirties and forties uh, they had the hands of Orlac. And there was the five finger hand of death or something with Peter Laurie as well, mm-hmm. where they had they had these, these uh, sort of um, appendages movies, whether it be the the hand, the arm, the, Very the brain. Very literal body horror. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so in this, you know, in this sort of nineteen eighties day and age, it was going to be a tough sell. It is actually based off a book called the, the Lizard's Tale. Yeah. Um, and they make a, a quick little reference of that even in the first ten minutes of the movie. Um, but whenever we do see the hand, and at least in the violence mode, you can't help but chuckle now. And it's part of it's it's not even its own fault, is because we've had films like Evil Dead 2 yeah. 
come and you know make that scene completely immortalized and hilarious because it is. It, I it, think that before Evil Dead Two happened, yeah. one could really ask. Can you do a fight yeah. scene between a man and a hand that isn't all credible? Or yeah. and, and uh, maybe you'd say no, but yeah. Evil Dead Two proved to the world it could, it could be, be done. done. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, but this is obviously a completely different animal yes. than Evil Dead Two. So he's a comic book uh, illustrator and writer, yeah. and um, he's got a pretty rocky marriage even before things are going south. But yeah. after he loses his hand in this freak traffic accident. Um, he falls apart fairly quickly and, yeah. and badly. And, uh, you know, his wife is making go eyes at this hilariously fashion. But, but here's the thing. I, don't, I, I almost don't blame her in a lot no. of ways. Because she is being actively pushed away. Anytime she tries to comfort him, she yeah. says no. Anytime she tries to give him good advice, he says no. Anytime she does anything, it's yeah. the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so he takes a job away from the where they're living and... Mm-hmm. Uh, ends up having an affair, meeting this Bruce McGill character, and yes, lo and behold, all of these people to which he holds personal animosity, mm-hmm. bad things start to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. The artist who is being hired to recreate his comic books, who's amusingly played by Charlie Fleischer, yes. who's the voice of Roger Rabbit, yep. um, <laughs> you know, bad, his work is destroyed by the hand, yes. you know, and uh, how much does he understand what this power is? Yeah. Um, so, I, in a way, I like the psychological angle. And the psychological angle wouldn't work if you weren't taking it seriously. Yeah. But then the B-movie angle of the crawling hand. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that the two things marry. The, like, the, the metaphor marries completely. Yeah. Just because the idea of the cre- image of the creeping hand is maybe yeah. a creepier uh, image in your head yeah. than an idea to build an entire story around. And quite honestly, I think what they should have done is not shown the hand up until the very end, mm-hmm. right when it you know is killing the psychiatrist. And and I think you should have made that def- quite brutal, no matter how you were going to do it, um, because the real like one of the big angles that the movie's trying to promote is is this or is this not real? Is yeah. he actually insane? And I don't even think they definitively answer it, even with that ending, because you could argue that that's just what he sees, right? <laughs> You could put that angle, but I, from early on, we're meant to believe that his severed hand, which is beautifully done by uh, Marco Bimbaldi, am, am I saying that correctly? Uh, and I was Stan Winston and Marco Bimbaldi. Where are we? Where are we? Carlo! Carlo Rimbaldi, thank you, sorry. Carlo Rimbaldi. It's actually pretty well done, but that's your kind of main selling point in the movie. That's your story, is that this is a man that's been clearly been driven insane. Uh, we're going to do this whole wink, wink, is here, isn't he angle. You know, let that cat out of the bag at the very end instead of, you know, in the first 20 minutes. And I do think that pacing is a bit of a problem oh, here. Okay. Like, I think that keeping it to a tight 80 to 90 minutes would have been beneficial to the ridiculousness of the story. Phones trying to sabotage our, uh, our podcast. It's Skynet. I don't think that the ridiculousness of like the, the crawling hand meshes well with the psychological depth of the story that they're attempting to tell. Is what I was trying to say. Um, and yes, you talk about it at the end of the movie because it's so clear and obvious that Michael Caine's character is getting more and more insane as this movie is progressing. He's taking out vengeance. He's you know responsible for his wife's death at this point. And he's almost gleeful as all of this is going down. 
And then we smash cut to, yes, he's being interviewed by a psychiatrist. And it reminded me of the last scene of Psycho where the shrink shows up to explain to the audience what the movie was all about, right? And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a manifestation of all your anger, of all your hate. What would the hand do if it was here? And, of course, the hand appears and kills her. And, again, like I said about the description of the movie, an artist loses his hand and it turns, it takes on a life of its own and kills people. Yeah. Or does, does it? it? Yeah, and that is the whole movie, and that is two hours of your life, right? And I think getting that down to a tight eighty or ninety would have made me like the movie more. Okay, so what were you jettisoned? <clears throat> I think that there's a lot of air in the scenes. It's the early '80s movies. It sort of feels like the late '70s movie, yeah. where they they really don't mind just letting you seep into the atmosphere. Yeah, and a lot of times that really works with more. It sounds weird to say real world when you talk about The Exorcist, but because of the religious angle of The Exorcist, it feels more, quote, real world. So we have more patience with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, What do you think of the either dream sequences or images of clairvoyancy like that's Some of my favorite stuff yeah uh, especially the shower scene for yeah. some reason where he goes to reach for the the nozzle in the shower and the nozzle yeah, that's very turns, german expressionistic yeah yeah, yeah. this weird metallic drippy yeah. hand thing yeah and uh i thought because you weren't you, you got the feeling like something was going to happen but yeah. you certainly couldn't have anticipated that yeah and this sort of the way it was dripping and melting i thought was a a nice visual metaphor for what was happening to the michael king character yeah i also wish we could have liked the michael king character more at least personally i stopped feeling sympathetic for him after a certain point yeah and i you know if i really believed that that art was his life and that when he lost mm-hmm. his hand he lost his way to express his art mm-hmm. and that that's where this anger was coming from mm-hmm. but i just felt him like he was just he was mad at everything and taking it out on everyone else, which is, mm-hmm. you know, probably how people react to trauma. But mm-hmm. it was pushing me away from him. Mm-hmm. Like, when he was righteous and angry with his wife, uh, I didn't I, I didn't feel on side with him. I didn't empathize with his position. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you. I even actually had in the question, what do you think of the wife? I, I don't hate the wife character like I should. Um, well, like the movie seems to... Yeah. We don't necessarily hate her, but we're supposed to empathize with how yeah. hurt he is by her behavior. Yeah. And I don't think she does anything that he doesn't do worse. Yeah. Like, she might be cold and distant from mm-hmm. him, but he is actively shitty to her. Right. Yeah. yeah. She might be clearly falling in love slowly with another person, but he fucks a student at the first opportunity. Yeah. He's just... He's the worst of the two, and yeah. clearly. Yeah. <laughs> and she dies, and uh, he gets... So we are allowed to believe that, that he did murder her, though. At the well, end. that's the impl- that's what the shrink is saying, and that's why he's been committed, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess if it was his hand, it would be his fingerprints or whatever. Um, but yeah, his hand is severed. But I honestly don't think that the movie answers the question. And after two hours, maybe they should have picked one. So you don't think that it gives you a... <laughs> like I think they, did, went, did. they went psychological, uh, like all of the other things, like the black and white dream sequences, the the yeah. car, the fact that the hand gets rid of problems for him, like yeah. anything he would be motivated to do, the hand takes care of it. Doesn't have any yeah. uh, agency of its own. Yeah, yeah, you can say, and they actually show in a flashback scene him attacking the girl he was having the affair with. Yeah. So if we're to believe that image. Uh, but again, we don't know. 
Yeah. And the movie doesn't definitively answer it. I think that we're supposed to, like, the big gotcha moment is the movie's told us that Michael Caine's crazy, he's been committed, this mm-hmm. is the end. But then, aha, there's the hand. Mm-hmm. And then, like, ooh, gotcha. But no, it really honestly felt like they just didn't make a choice there. Really? I thought they did. Yeah? The hand was real? The hand was real after Winton killed her. I mean, he's tied up even, and, you know, he takes off the straps. We're presuming that he escapes the, the asylum. Um, so he takes I think, off the straps, but he does free himself. The hand doesn't free him. He frees himself. Yeah, I, I still think that they were showing their hand at that point. Even though... <laughs> yeah. showing their hand, Lee. Ah! <laughs> even the whole image about how he gets his ring back and... Uh, and I, I'm surprised you haven't talked about one of the you know the insane cliches uh, you know of the jumping cat scare. Oh yes, yeah, and that, and that cat the, 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 like plummets plummets himself through that window. It's really bizarrely also handled. Keep showing that thing eating lizards and stuff. There's yeah. a lot of weird uh, hunter prey imagery yeah. throughout it. They yeah. kept on like I thought that maybe the cat was gonna fucking catch the the hand or yeah. that the hand was gonna but they didn't ever end up playing that. Yeah, part. I wanted to talk about Bruce McGill. Um, he's yep. one of the other professors at this college where he, he's mm-hmm. working at that he meets and he kind of makes a, a connection with and he confides in mm-hmm. and who is actually a pretty decent friend to him considering yep. they don't know each other from Adam and Michael Caine subsequently sleeps with a girl that he's clearly in love with and when he figures it out Michael Caine kills the dude yep. and it's a pretty thankless role but I have to say I really thought that performance by Bruce McGill was strong mm-hmm. just one of like the characters like was fully fledged he was a flawed guy he is a little bit pretentious mm-hmm. but it was a fully realized character a lot of range when he was really upset and sad he looked all bleary and drunk yep. and miserable yep. and you could see him recognize on the face you fucking slept with her. Like, yeah. he doesn't say it, but you see the realization on his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody likes to pour praise on Michael Caine, and he certainly doesn't suck. He but classes this, up this joint. Yeah, but I think in, in those scenes, the Bruce McGill actor, he just did circles around Michael Caine. He makes his role. Uh, he makes his role, yeah. is the best way I'd sort of describe it. No, he t- he did what he had with a small part and made it a, you know, a great, great character. So we feel that death and that happens. And then I agree, all that credit goes to Bruce McGill in that, in that scene. It's a fairly standard Michael Caine performance. It's yeah. not as like whacked as like dressed to kill or or uh, some of the more bigger Michael Caine performances. Yeah, uh, I think he was taking them like again, like everyone else, he was taking it straight and seriously. Yeah, uh, and like I say, he doesn't. I would never. I can't really think of. He's been in bad movies, but I can't really. Oh think yeah, of no, no. I mean, he made he, he made this movie because he wanted to extend his garage. Is, <laughs> is what he said. This is definitely a paycheck movie. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't give a paycheck performance. No, no. Saying. When you get Michael Caine, you get Michael Caine. You know, <laughs> he's kind of like Jeff Goldblum in a lot of ways now. Is where you know he's really just doing Michael Caine, the character actor, and you know, and, and put that role you know in, in, in a different kind of movie. But um, you know, I don't think he ever undersells anything. Yeah, but he never necessarily disappears either. You always yeah. know you're watching Michael, Michael Caine, Caine, but you usually like it. Yeah. Um, if these ingredients sound interesting to you, by all means, check out the hand. But it's yeah. certainly not anything that I'm enthusiastic about. No, I mean it's a slick production. That's the best way I would sort of describe it. Yeah. Um, and they sort of succeed in at least taking a sort of serious approach. To, a serious approach to this movie. This movie could have fallen off the rails very easily. So. I'll, it's, I'm surprised that that actually works in some sort of way. Because honestly, if I was making a movie called The Hand, or like, I would imagine taking yeah. a lighter approach, trying to have some fun yeah. with it. Yeah. And they're not trying to have fun with it. <clears throat> they're trying to be thoughtful. 
But again, I just don't know how the silliness and the thoughtfulness are incongruous, yep. I guess. Yep, yep, yep. If you enjoy there? being really scared, if you're not afraid of the unknown, if you've found a friend in fear, then we have a friend for you. Hi. Samantha. Give me the police. The director who unleashed Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven, now brings you his most frightening creation. Get out of my house! Hey, girl. She's killing people. Mom? Deadly Friend is not like a movie that got terrible out of age. It was terrible in 1986. I saw this at a young age and I knew it was fucking terrible. I think, yeah, I think everyone involved would say that this movie is a disaster. But it, it, it is really strange to me because I, in my memory, just because I guess it made more sense, mm-hmm. he made Deadly Blessing, Wes Craven made Deadly Blessing before Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Right? It was clearly a movie he must have made before yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, yes. right? Yeah. No, this is his follow-up to Nightmare on Elm Street. He just hit the big times, and this was the next thing that came out. Yeah. And it's a very, quote, modern in 1986 movie yeah. about forward-thinking robotics, electronics, computer consciousness. And it's, I guess you could argue 20 or 30 years before its time, Yeah. but it's also... Awful. Yep. Front to back, yep. wall to wall, yep. top to bottom. Yep. No redeeming performances, no redeeming sequences. It is a hard sit. Yeah. And like I, I have said before in the podcast, I will. I, I don't like just being about hate, yep. especially with it's a director that I like. Yep. But I am sitting here before you fucking flabbergasted. <laughs> yeah, this movie is a disaster. Part of the problem, uh, once again, a lot of the things that happened uh, offstage or back, backstage yeah. kind of ended up uh, on what the, what is now the muddled mess of Deadly Friend. Uh, you, ha- you have to imagine that Wes Craven had just ca- come off A Nightmare on Elm Street, but he also wanted to get outside of the horror genre. That was no secret. He said that for a long time, that he wanted to be a, a filmmaker, not just a genre film director. And he j- that's just what sort of the pit- Hollywood pigeon towed him into. Yeah. But he but, made, you know, yeah. Serpent the Rainbow, he made music of yeah, I know, I <laughs> so. know. I, uh, anyways... Uh, and he just saw his friend and colleague John Carpenter do Starman and received both critical mm-hmm. and commercial success. I mean, you know, Jeff Bridges was getting a nomination and everything. So Universal Pictures had the screenplay originally called BB. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even like the head... Uh, <laughs> Are you fine? Did you swallow something? <laughs> no, go ahead, sorry. I will yeah. wait to let, let, unleash on BB. Uh, anyways... Uh, and even like the head of the head of Universal at the time, you know, apparently just wept 
reading the script. And originally it was supposed to be this sort of coming of age love story between a boy and well and his robot essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was Craven saw it as it was going to be his Starman. And it was go- originally it was going to be this sort of family, not quite family friendly, but you know more of a family film involving this boy and this robot. Uh, who eventually, you know, love, learn, and and go on together. Yeah. Uh, and anyways, they made that movie. And then they had the first test screening. And it all turned to disaster right from there. Uh, you know, a lot of people were expecting the next, the next Wes Craven horror movie. Uh, so they well, that's with, what they advertised it as. Well, but, but see, that's originally was that was not the script. That was not the story. Well, that's... So, I, I mean... And that's kind of painfully obvious. The yeah. very, very, very first thing you see in this movie is this yeah. guy tries to break into the car yeah. and the robot threatens his life. Yeah. And that screams to me as a late stage resuit. Yes. Because the movie clearly starts in the next scene with the yes. son and the mother talking their exposition about the yeah. fresh move and the friendly, gremlin chattering robot, BB, yeah. in the yeah. back seat. That fucking robot has to be the most irritating character in film history. I wish they had twin Jar Jar Binks in this movie over that BB robot. Like, it's gremlin-y chatter that it does. I'm BB. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, the, the, the cheesy 80s robot voice. Yeah. It basically kind of looks like number five is alive with just a little bit white. Johnny more, Five, yeah, yeah. Johnny yeah, yeah. Five with more white on it instead of silver. Yeah, yeah. And the execution of the character, everything about it is irritating and hard to watch. Yeah. And counterintuitively, at least in the original form of the script, I think we're supposed to love BB. Like we're supposed yeah. to. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, we're supposed oh yeah. To bond yeah. 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 With this like robot. here's the thing. We're supposed to care about this robot. Yes. It's going to be important because yeah. when BB gets destroyed, it's got to be this big moment for the film. Yeah. And I gotta say, when Anne Ramsey double gets the double barrel shotgun and starts killing BB, you're cheering. I'm on Team Ramsey. I'm <laughs> celebrating this robot stuff. And the main character, this terrible actor named Matthew Laborte, yeah. is just no BB. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I'm like. Like, yeah, BB die. Hey, you but at least, die but you now. can't be too hard on BB because it actually gives one of the best end credit title songs ever. <laughs> with I'm BB, I hate it so much. That song I is awesome. Even put it, like ironically on a mixed CD for it's right up there with my head is like a shark's fin, baby. <laughs> Deepest blue. Ugh. I'm BB. But lest you think BB is the only cringe-inducing thing in this thing, yeah. like I, I was pretty shitty about the lead. Yeah, Christy Swanson. I've All right, I, I want I, I want to get to her, but I want to finish my original thought here. Oh, I'm sorry. Because uh, what happened was they had this test screening, and it was a disaster. Like people hated what they what they what they saw. They were expecting a horror movie, so, so they, they went so they went back. And they put in like all the all the all the R-rated bloody moments, the dream sequences, even that nightmare sequence with the father, well, uh, getting that getting stabbed yeah, and shooting. Yeah, that's right out of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, that's a deleted scene from Nightmare on Elm Street. She's in her bed. Yeah, and he comes all up of that, through the sheets like yeah, a shark. And thing. then the like, and then the uh, ending, which you, which you also comment about. They, they reshot the ending. Um, and the two things they they took out a lot of the character building scenes. In the first half of the movie, between Christy Swanson and the boy, because mm-hmm. that love story was played up a whole lot more. And so, when that tragedy happens, when he has, when he does the whole Frankenstein thing, Christy Swanson, his friendly neighbor who he's falling in love with, is killed by her abusive father, so he makes yeah. her an evil robot. Sorry, yes. we didn't mention that. Sorry. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> um, that's all in the director's cut. Right. And so, what you had is like two totally different movies. 
all of a sudden come together. And it's obvious. Yeah. It's not cleanly slept. Here's the thing I've often wondered, though. I wonder if you even saw Wes Craven's original cut, that the movie would still be oh, no. terrible. Because, the acting is not good. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Like, across the board, not very good. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell, there's another movie, although this movie, for some reason, people seem to like think is amazing in Warship, which is the same issue, right? Yeah. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Yeah. It was originally made as a 90-minute like pilot episode yeah. for a TV show. Nobody wanted it. So he added an extra 45 minutes of smut and strange and called it Mulholland Drive and mm-hmm. people heaped rewards and praise on him. Yeah. I think they were trying to say like, well, we tried to make an Oshuk sci-fi romance, yeah. but it's terrible. So let's give them what they really wanted, which was a horror movie. Yeah. And you can feel it. Like the first 45 minutes of this movie has no frights to it and no personality to it. Yeah. And, like, if, maybe they cut out the good scenes where I felt Christy Swanson and Sky Bond. Yeah, see, that's why I even sort of think that would, it would have been just as bad. That first kiss that they have is yeah. one of the most painful things. Like, yeah. there's no heat there at all. In yeah. fact, like, I... I would just assume that those two actors had a passionate hate for each other, <laughs> and they, this was as close as they could get to bringing the heat. Yeah. But I hate to be mean to Chrissy Swanson because she was so young. Yeah, 19, I think. But when she's resurrected and yeah. she's affecting the BB movements, yeah, like that's... it is embarrassing for me to watch. I it's am, a bad choice all around. I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed for her. Mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed for everybody who was on set who didn't say anything to help her out of this humiliation. Yeah. Uh, it's scary for all the wrong reasons. It becomes this cringe comedy, uncomfortable, like, theater of stupid. There's an infamous, semi-famous sequence where Anne Ramsey is killed. With yeah, a, that was one of the reshoots, yeah. With a, a basketball that yeah. shatters her head like porcelain glass. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, I guess it's like that isolated moment in, in The Wicker Man where, where Nick Cage goes so deliriously over the top that it yeah. becomes just for a moment hilarious. Yeah. But that moment is so not worth putting up with this movie. Yeah. And I'm sorry about all the trials and tribulations. And, like, I guess that explains, like, he went in trying to make an Oshuk sci-fi and then had to retool it into horror. And, of course, it came out like utter garbage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I can't, I, I can't, you know, take out the kid gloves on this. I can't pretend it's anything but, but terrible. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's a disaster. Um <laughs> I don't know what else I can say. Um, this, like, like I said, it's one of those films that apparently, like the recent Hellboy, probably has has gone through where there was so much infighting backstage, too perhaps too many cooks that this was the muddled mess that it was. Um, the big ending sequence. If it was a different movie, yeah. I guess maybe would have worked. But the idea that I, evil uh, BB. Why are you trying to sabotage this podcast? With I phone? don't know. The idea... The phone, this phone is doing that. I don't... You saw it originally. Yeah. I, well, the, uh, the idea that an evil BB would erupt out of this person, mm-hmm. it has no setup or background to this. The BB would suddenly be full-on satanic evil. Nothing, but, like... Maybe that could have been the ending to another movie in which that ending made I sense. often wondered if that, like, that, that, that really tragic melodramatic sequence where she's running towards the cop to get shot or, right. you know, she's trying to stop. That was probably the original ending of the script and then they tacked on that, that god-awful you're coming with me 
death See? by cop suicide. Yeah. I don't know. And yeah, him going to the or to steal her body to bring her back to life again is just an idea of a character who has moved not at all forward, who has learned nothing. Uh, it's not the only really bad movie that Wes Craven made, yeah. but I do think it is the very worst movie that Wes Craven made. I think it manages to outsuck my soul to take. That's, that's that, bold words. That's impressive. Bold <laughs> words. My soul to take is, 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 is pretty embarrassing. Brave, <laughs> brave words. I, I, you know, give me Swamp Thing again and again and again over this. Oh, see, like, then you bring in Swamp Thing and it's one of those, it gives pause. It gives pause. <laughs> Um, oh. I still love me some Wes Craven. And Even I, like Vampire in Brooklyn, dude? I haven't seen Vampire in Brooklyn in You a have long not time. seen Vampire in Brooklyn? I, if that I did, has it was to so be. Long ago, I barely remember. Dude, I think that has to be the worst. Scraping the barrel of the. Well, Craven if someday, bottom. in episode 5024, yeah. it sings to the level of reviewing Vampire in Brooklyn, yeah. that will be the day I decide. I have no memory of that movie. I think I did watch it at some point. But that Dude, do you know how nerdy that just sounded, too? <laughs> <laughs> this needs to end. Uh, um, Deadly Friend. It sucks. Bullet point. I'm if you haven't seen Deadly Friend, baby. good for, for you. you. Did I scare you? I am sorry. When I killed it, it was a wolf. And then before my very eyes... Neither child nor adult, wolf nor human. This is the twilight world which lies between the pages of any fairy tale. Why, what big arms do you have? To deny it is to kill the child that lives within us all. To enter it is to kill the dreams of childhood. Jesus, what big teeth do you have? Where did you hear a story like that? Not a story, but God's honest truth. Granny told me. So the company of wolves was interesting for a lot of reasons. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, Neil Jordan, I guess the height of his popularity was probably the first half of the nineties. Mm -hmm. I think he's always made interesting films. Mm -hmm. Um, but this has the kind of intersecting pretzel narratives within narratives, multiple narrative, multiple stories. Mm -hmm. Like it, it seems so as consciously affected as like the Grand Budapest Hotel was mm -hmm. with Wes Anderson. But <clears throat> it's less interested in whimsy and fun and character mm -hmm. and more interested in exploring this sort of fairy tale realm. Mm -hmm. So we get uh, a series of stories, some mm -hmm. that, are, that are actually like delivered as monologues, some mm -hmm. that are actually They're vignettes is what us. I would call them. It's almost an anthology mm -hmm. and that anthology is sort of bookended by this modern pieces this this teenage girl falls asleep after reading a magazine and presumably this wandering series of narratives in, in is her dreamscape and our exploration of fairy tale tropes 
um, particularly you know the uh, the wolf and the maiden kind mm-hmm. of motif, the innocent maiden fair mm-hmm. and the big bad wolf who mm-hmm. wants after her, and it seems much more an exploration of themes and tone mm-hmm. than it is of character or story. Mm-hmm. It's hypnotizing. It's odd, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed watching it. But again, I, I, I don't know if I would say I would recommend it to somebody. I don't regret my time with this movie, mm-hmm. but it's not amazing. <laughs> it's interesting. And, and I'll, it, I'll give it that. I really liked it. On a given day, there will probably be more interesting things to watch. Yeah. But uh, if you're obsessed with cool werewolf transformations, you're gonna. It get has that. some amazing special effects. Like if you're down to just just for that sequence, I yeah. think a lot of people will just want to uh, check that out. And it has one of the most memorable like covers for a movie that I yeah. can remember from my childhood. Ever since I was a little kid, seeing the VHS with that screaming mouth and the snout of a dog yeah. erupting out of it, yeah. it was. It's a horrifying image. Yeah, yeah. Uh, strong, and it. Al- I always remembered that cover <clears throat> so in a way in the end I don't know what to make of it. it it is a bunch of imagery you know Angela Lansbury shows up in here yeah. uh, it's set sort of in a wonder no time but it's also unmistakably the 80s yeah <laughs> um, it's got that sort of soft dream tint to it like it's yeah. almost slightly out of focus but deliberate yeah uh, I think uh, people who are into like set design and the technical art of filmmaking but but that was the stuff that was jiving for me like, yeah. you know what I'm saying yeah <laughs> I, as a person who likes film I appreciated the movie mm-hmm. and I might have appreciated the movie more than I liked <laughs> okay well uh, well, vampires used to be allegorically about sexual promiscuity I mean that's the sort of part of the backbone of that folklore but uh, what, what they've done is instead of vampires let's add werewolves mm-hmm. you know this is once again I'd be curious to see how this film would play in the Me Too movement because really it's all about toxic masculinity uh, and how it, it's, it's connected to the violence is sexual well not only that but anytime you know bad male behavior it's referenced as werewolves but so, whereas traditional werewolves is the beast within all yeah. of our worst well, worst parts and our, our, our deep dark desires yeah. that we keep pent down yeah. uh, are let out. And That's what this company, Wolves, is really all about. I mean, yeah. why else would you have the Little Red Riding Hood story? It, it's, it's exploring that. It's, it's, in a lot of ways, though, it's an anti-Puritan movie, even though it's set during that time uh, and what the, the, the author is exploring. But she's not afraid of sexuality in a lot of ways she, because... You know, when at the end, she it's metaphorically she's you know she's made love and she becomes a wolf herself. Even the mother character in the story, you know, is explaining to her that you know, daddy doesn't hurt me. You know, um, it's actually it's, it's something else. And your grandmother is smart in some areas, but not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about you know the end of innocence and then awakening of a lot of things, not just sexual awakening. Well, the uh, fear of this, of the big uh, red wolf yeah, as the of fear the, of yeah. sexuality. But she does embrace adulthood yeah um but it is there is a whole lot of you know the fear is a lot of male rage i'll just say that much or male bad behavior Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and usually those that sort of explore, explored more in werewolf stories or, or vampire stories than it is werewolves. Even though we have The Howling, which explores that same sort of theme, that's what this really is. And it's structured as a play. Like the, the whole vignettes, that's the kind of thing that you could get away more in a play than in a traditional cinematic narrative. Yeah, but the story does yeah. seem to reset itself every 30 minutes yeah. or so. Or yeah, it's, attack, it's an attack on class. It's an attack on... Um, gender roles in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's yeah. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It is a very interesting piece. It's ambitious and interesting. I like. I yeah. don't think I cracked the screenplay, but I'm not sure if it's because the screenplay is smarter than I am. And as far as these no. conventions of uh, uh, of you know the fantasy images, of yeah. Little Red Riding Hood, the symbol of innocence, and the big bad wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. This is a tale as old as time, very yeah. literally. This is one of like the oldest, oldest uh, emblems of that. And uh, in a uh, lot of ways, I really do think it's the sort of start of a trilogy uh, of stories that he explored, both in Interview and Byzantine, because he likes having their monsters talking, really talking about class structure and pol- sexual political st- structure and hierarchies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, all. Those three stories have those connections. So I, I, I kind of wonder if Jordan ever really sort of sees it like that. Um, a lot of you, a lot of times you would see this rented in the horror movie section, and it and rightly so. You can loosely say, I guess it is a werewolf picture, but it doesn't it doesn't fit the mold necessarily of a tradition. No, yeah, uh, and there's a, there's a percentage of art uh, art yeah. cinema to it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's sort of about what it's about moment to moment instead of overall. This scene is going to address this. And then the next scene is yeah. going to address this. But the whole movie doesn't have a plaster man, so to speak. Not, not in the traditional narrative sense, but I do think it, it seems like a, a, you know, a young screenwriter who is playing around with certain themes and that sort of became a part of the real narrative. You know, using, using traditional uh, supernatural elements to sort of express uh, what she's trying to work through in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it feels like a, like a very interesting piece in a lot of ways. I don't know how to sort of describe it. There are a lot lots of words for it. It's hard for me to describe how I feel about the movie because I guess I don't know exactly how I feel about the movie. But yeah. one of the more memorable s- sequences, Stephen Ray, who's an actor that, that we have a young Stephen Ray, in, yeah, yeah. In Neil Jordan movies quite a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, he he's gone werewolf, mm-hmm. and his uh, the werewolf is decapitated, mm-hmm. and the head flings across the yeah. room, bounces off the wall, and lands in this big pan or bucket of milk. Yeah, and as the head rolls in it, we see that it's no longer the the, the wolf, yeah. but it's Stephen Ray as this pure white milk starts turning red. Yeah. And there's all these very specific choices about mm-hmm. that, and some of them like, why was that big container of milk just sitting there? Like, it's because they I, needed. I, that. I think that that was a more visual cool because they there. wanted the head to land there. That's yeah. why it's there, not yeah. because it makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that. Is a really cool image and a really strong scene, but that's where all the decision making is going in the movie. You know what I mean? Mm. What looks good or what feels good, as opposed to what makes sense. It's not. It's a cross, I guess, because she's dreaming between fairy tale logic and dream logic, which yeah. means it's it's kind of tenuous and it's it's 
what it's doing moment to moment. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't shake me off, and it's not obtuse the way I always pick on David Lynch for being. Yeah. Like, I'm still with the thread of the movie. Yeah. And there are reoccurring elements that you can stay grounded with, and mm-hmm. we come back to these same characters. And mm-hmm. Angela Lansbury, like we said, playing both the narrator and the grandmother figure. Yep. <laughs> it's bite... funny how long Angela Lansbury was playing. And she bites it hardcore in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there's she a died. couple of deaths that are, like, <laughs> for the records. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and you go back to the original Grimm's fairy tales, too. Yeah. A lot of the times we get the sort of sweet, dumbed-down, yeah. bedtime story for your kids version mm-hmm. of, of, you know, Red Riding Hood, not, you know, people being cut open and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know. In their original forms, these are horror stories more than they are, quote, fairy tale or fantasy stories. Mm-hmm. And this movie definitely honors that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting dreamscape experience movie yep <laughs> yep and uh like i chew over i think about it i sometimes i think it means something sometimes i think maybe they're just taking wild swings no but i it's, think it's all very deliberate on, on what she's trying to explore the writer it's memorable and and what neil jordan or sober exploring about yeah it's memorable um, and like it, it has stuck in my head since I was a kid. Like I've never let go of it. And that there, that sorry. Well, just for that reason, yeah. I would recommend it over a lot of the other movies. Yeah. But I think it would be a movie that I'd recommend to somebody. But in my heart of hearts, I would have no idea what they were going to make of it. Yeah. Like, but try it. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> yeah. No. Um, what did you think of that sort of last transformation scene with, you know, obviously the person who's supposed to be the big bad wolf from Red Riding Hood, you know, comes home and is beaten and rejected by our Red Riding Hood. Yeah. And that whole sequence, what did you think of that one? Well, in going back to the first story that's told mm-hmm. the, where the guy goes into the woods and he is bitten and he becomes the monster, it, be, mm-hmm. it seems less inherent that he is. Mm-hmm. The, the, at the end, this is more of a traditional, he is a monster, mm-hmm. um, but pitiable. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in necessarily the Frankenstein's monster scent, but just that that would be a bad place. Mm-hmm. If your head was always locked in its worst possible <laughs> spot, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, if I hadn't mentioned before, like the special effects are very strong, especially mm-hmm. for 1984. Mm-hmm. This is all practically achieved, and uh, it's a not a low budget, but a lower end budget for what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. So, uh, specifically the sequence you're talking about, yeah. I, I mean, I. I get what they're going for, and it's not that the roles are reversed, but the power is reversed. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that was also an, an interesting angle for the story, mm-hmm. or at least though that element of the story. Um, I love the fact that she turns into Wolf at the end and breaks the window. Uh, you know, to but, me, that sort of signals that you know she has officially lost her innocence and is ready for adulthood. But she also seems a wolf possessed of its own agency. She's not snarling and rabid yeah. necessarily. Yeah. She doesn't seem like a monster. She seems like... Well, like a wolf. A wolf. Yes. So. Good enough? Good enough. In this old castle, death is the youngest thing alive. For it is born and reborn 13 times. Each time from a different dementia. A miasma of madness hides the one who delivers death. One who walks with silent tread and strikes with ruthless force. Is it the mother, demented by grief, 
for the attentive daughter-in-law, whose voice is soothingly hypnotic. She'll tell me. I promise you. Is it the sun who with fire creates beauty? Or the doctor who can cure and kill? Or perhaps the new bride, tortured by the ever-present nearness of death? the frenzy of a wedding night in which a marriage is consummated in a passion of terror. You two will be mesmerized by a world that cannot be, but is. The mystery of the enigmatic leads to a strange rendezvous, an attempted escape, a meeting with terror. Francis Ford Coppola is sort of a go-to, gopher, handy guy, mm -hmm. playing multiple different roles in the, you know, <laughs> Roger Corman pictures all over the place. Mm -hmm. And he wants to direct, and he's done a few skin pixie things. And he was coming up in, you know, in the... He's, earned his, world. he's yeah. earning his place where he can maybe get a, a movie. Yeah. And so Corman gives him one, but there's a substantial but, right? He's got a very tight schedule, and he's got two fixed locations. I believe it was the pond and the manor, the, the, yep. the house, and whatever amount of days that they had to shoot it. So Yeah, their money was left over from this other film that they had made. On top of making this movie incredibly cheaply, from an already incredibly cheap production company, mm -hmm. they would have had to have been making this movie at a dead run. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, Quick and Dirty is how they do it. I think they shot these old cheap horror movies the way people sort of shoot serialized television these yeah. days, right? It's yeah. just, go team. Not Let's not be precious. Not multiple yeah. takes. Yeah. We know what we're doing. Make these choices. Yeah. So, when you watch Dementia 13, yeah. I don't think you're going to see, like, oh, yeah, this is the guy who's going to bring us the Godfather. Yeah, this no. Is the the, guy this is his first Godfather. movie, I think. Yeah. This is a guy doing the best he can with a pretty lousy hand. Yeah. Uh, and and you can't a... help but root, root for the film and then in that Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. In the end of the day, I don't think it's a great movie. Yeah. But I, I kind of like... It's got an underdog quality to it. Yeah. He was dealt a, a lame hand and he stayed in the game as long as he possibly could. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the, the stuff in the movie was like so... As Roger Corman was happily and probably instructing him to do, ripped off from other movies. Well, it's a, it's a ripoff of Psycho, really. Directly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like we, we establish with a main character and she gets killed like a third of the way into the movie and we've lost our main character and oh yeah. shit. And if, you know, it hadn't just happened three years ago in Psycho, the audience yeah. could get really excited about that. But. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have to say, I really love that opening act of this movie, the, the, the sort of setup. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's our sort of how our character scaffolds into this very crazy family. That opening scene with the boat with her husband, where clearly this marriage is not one born out of love. No. 
uh, they're even having a conversation of you better not double cross me or I'll yeah, let. it's on the nose writing and again yeah. I attribute that to the speed with which it is being written yeah. but and then the, fate inter- intervenes and she, you know this guy has a heart attack and all his pills are gone they're not they're not giving each other dialogue they're telling each other the story of the yeah. movie right yeah. there's nothing natural about their exchanges yeah. and like he says if I die you'll get nothing and then instantly dies of a heart attack yeah. like it's just like yeah yeah, on the nose doesn't say it, yeah. but and I guess it's sort of pleasing and charming in that way. But I 100% agree with you. I think that I'm with the movie until she dies. Okay. Um, and then I think that the movie drops a significant degree in quality, and then towards the end it drops again. Sure. Uh, okay. I think it gets less good as we're going. Yeah. I'll give it that. I'll give it that, yeah. So, uh, our main character... Sorry, let's get this up in front of me. Uh, well, our would-be main character, uh, Louise Halloran, uh, wants to... You can't say it in an Italian sort of way. I could if I wanted to. Uh, she is clearly like a femme fatale. Yes. And, and and not as redeemable as the femme fatale that Psycho presents us with, in which, in yeah. that case, she steals some money, but no. feels conflicted about it. No, she's, she's definitely... Like, who can I ingratiate myself with and who can I manipulate yeah, so that yeah. my life can She's be a con happy? artist. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to cheer for her, but we, this is who's steering the plot until yeah. she's axed out of it. Um, but uh, as much as, like, I knew that she was conniving, I was sort of waiting to see how she was going to get her comeuppance. Yeah. And it just I didn't have to wait the 75 minutes. I only had to wait 15. Well, she manipulated herself into her own doom yeah. in a lot of ways. The, well, in a lot of ways. In, in, in that way, very much. The family she's met, uh, her husband's family, who she's lied and says out of a, a way, yeah. uh, they have this bizarre ritual to pay honor to their lost, the lost daughter. Yeah. The, the two brothers and the mother gather around this pond and then do this pantomime mourning and she like throws herself into tizzy and basically collapses from the grief. Yeah. And they make a point of doing this every year. Yeah. So clearly she's psychologically fragile. Yeah. Clearly this is the backstory why. This yeah. is what she's going to use to make the the poor grieved mother believed that the daughter wants this woman to be part of the family and somehow get the fortune. Yeah. So she strips down into her sexy 60s bra and undies yep. and swims down into the pond, gets spooked by seeing the somehow pickled doll. body or the doll. Of it, the, it's the, the it's a doll all set up by the killer. Yeah. Uh, so she kind of goes, swims to the shore in shock. What is she going to do? And lo and behold, she's killed. Yep. And there, for like I said, that's where the everything interesting in the movie stops for me. The uh, in, the investigator that we get to meet, I think, yeah. is ham-handed both yes. in his execution and in the script. Mm-hmm. The two brothers, who are the only two active other suspects that we have, because uh, in this day and age, I guess the axling mother figure was pretty pretty easy to cross off the list. Yeah. It, <laughs> It's not quite like a, a three-person murder mystery, <laughs> but it's there's nothing complicated from that point on in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just waiting for the inevitable resolve, and the climax doesn't have any kind of big heightened payoff. It's one of those cheesy 60s gunfire deaths where he's shot, and he staggers, and oh, it's almost a Shatner-ish death <laughs> in the way it plays out, and it's like the big moment yeah. of the movie. 
so how I get around to liking the movie is to like where we started. It's just like, well, he made this in 10 days and he didn't know he was making that movie probably like a week before he started shooting it. I did a a play with my friend uh, Rob Reynolds, who's been Mm -hmm. on the show called Creeping Zombie Insanity. But we got our slot in the fringe and we had like six weeks or something to write, direct, and act in this play. And I, I kind of feel about Creeping Zombie Insanity is how I feel about Dimension 13. It's not my greatest piece of work, but for something put together on the fly at a dead run, yeah. produced and put up on its feet, shag-assed as it is, uh, for that it's interesting. But like we said at the introduction of this episode... I think this is a movie for, for completists of Coppola or for someone who's like yep. a student of film and who can can sort of get around the corners of this movie. Mm-hmm. At this day and age, in 2019, who would I recommend other than that Dementia 13? I can think of no one. Yeah, no, this is for movie nerds and completists only. This is the kind of movie that I think on a different day I would have easily hated but I was in the mood for a schlocky, Hitchco- Hitchcockian ripoff, um, old thriller style film. Uh, I, so I caught it on a very, very good day. Right. Um, there was that one actor who looked a lot like Tom Noonan. That was the other thing I was. Oh yeah, I thought yeah, that too. That's yeah, but I, I, and I've seen that actor before. Do you know, remember his name? I don't. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. The entire time it was distracting. Like. That's a young Tom Noonan. Like, I know it's not Tom Noonan, but... But it could be. be yes. <laughs> uh, anyways, Dementia 13. It's... I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Here's yeah. my other yeah. thing that I would ask you. Because yeah. I think I hear us making excuses in Gratiation of the Movie. But yeah. because it's made by Coppola and it comes out of Corman, we know yeah. all of this trivia about the movie. Yeah. Imagine we didn't. And imagine it wasn't directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. Would you and I be making excuses for it? We'd be making fun of it, probably. We'd probably be harder on it. We might not be terrible of it. But I think that says something, too. Yep, absolutely. One week from tonight, she's young, beautiful, successful, and has everything to live for. But someone wants her dead. Hello? David Burney and Adrian Barbeau star in a chilling tale of suspense and terror. A twisted maniac is at large. Can he be stopped before it's too late? Someone's watching me next Wednesday on NBC. The review's so nice, we're doing it twice. There you go. Well, first of all, Parsons, I personally want to thank you so much for actually getting a 1980s song in my head. I know that was not your original intention. But, uh, you know, when this, when I read to do the list and there was this title and I was Googling it, the first thing that came up was Rockwell, Someone's Watching Me. And ever since that moment, every day, I sing that song. Yeah. I sing that song. I believe that somebody's song. watching me, technically. And the movie is technically called so, Someone's Oh, watching me. we're doing the whole so, grammar now. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Is it present continuous? There is are, it past participle? There are two different titles there. They're okay. They're not the same Fine. That's all I'm saying. Fine. But I don't mind getting 80s songs stuck in your head. I, I remember I had like a... <laughs> Suzanne Vega, do, 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 Oh, that do, is do, like a song in my head for like two Tom's years. Diner. Yeah, I am sure I had that song stuck in my head for two fucking years. Yeah. <laughs> like, there is, I think that song would rank pretty high and probably the most <laughs> annoyingly hypnotic song it's a ever. Worm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, just wow. 
And it took, for, it took forever to get Tom's Diner out of my head. And now that I made you think about it, you're stuck with it again. You have re- rewoken a psychosis. None of that, of course, has anything to do with someone's watching me. <laughs> 1978 John Carpenter picture. Uh, um, in 1978, John Carpenter made three films. He, he did. was incredibly active and busy. He made the Elvis Presley biopic with Kurt Russell. He made this movie, and then he followed it up like almost immediately. Three weeks after they finished production on this, he did this Halloween movie, which yep. was going to change. His Never career. heard of it. Yeah, it was going to change his career forever. Yeah, and uh, at the risk of repeating myself, Mr. Beckman, yeah. I think anybody could come into this movie and find stuff to enjoy. It's a stalker thriller movie, mm-hmm. um, but I think if you're a fan of Carpenter and particularly a fan of Halloween, yeah, I can absolutely, with no reservations recommend this movie to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, Carpenter completed this is absolutely genre fans to taste. Yeah. It's very 70s and it is made for television. Yeah. Uh, um, do you remember when ABC and CBS used to do these sort of TV movies of the week? They might play like Thursday nights and whatnot. Oh, yeah. It's of that caliber and quality. Yeah. So, But that's okay. That's fine. That's uh, Lauren okay. Lauren Hutton plays Lee Michael. Great name. She's a TV director. She yes. has moved from New York to Los Angeles. She's yeah. living in a high-rise apartment. Yeah. Um, on her very first day, we see that this dude with a telescope has spotted her. And yeah. uh, we already know from the pre-credit sequence he's bad news. And the film is basically a very, very familiar derivative, even stalker movie. Yeah. Uh, it's added more color because John Carpenter has written some interesting characters into mm-hmm. it and because we can see his style sort of start to take shape. But because they had to be careful with the content and be a little bit more reserved in what they were doing for TV, yeah. he would wasn't relying on the shock tactics to get the scares. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the mentality that he's going to end up bringing into Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I would posit that maybe he wouldn't have brought that mentality into it mm-hmm. if it wasn't for someone's watching me. It is entirely possible. It is entirely possible. So that's where I start on it. Uh, as a fan of Carpenter, I find this movie very interesting. Yeah. As a horror movie fan, fan it's mm-hmm. clearly kind of middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Where do you land on someone's watching? Uh, overall, I kind of like it. I mean, I, I I immediately accepted you know that we're going to have this sort of TV movie style aesthetic or any structure, and we're going to be playing a lot. And I knew we were playing with Rear Window, uh, which I think is one of the most classic thrillers. Um, and there's some typical uh, Carpenter consistencies or, or um, techniques that we see early on and you know specific shot sequences so, you know Carpenter's also very good especially in the beginning with you know objects either good in the foreground or background that become you know a part of the scene or a way to sort of carry the narrative along through we see it in Halloween with Jimmy Lee Curtis and the telephone we see it here with Lauren Hutton uh, who's a very spunky character as well yeah um incorporate here as you know not one way to sort of continue the story in someone's watching me so uh, the, 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 his style of building suspense uh, is definitely honed in here as well we see it uh, uh, what did you think of the, the, the whole greater scene the scene where she's being chased in the garage I think initially mm-hmm. no laundromat right and she hides in the grate yeah she avoids him yeah. and, and 
we get her perspective on it. I mean, I wasn't, I, I wouldn't lie. Do you think it's? Say, the, do you think he knows uh, that she's underneath? I don't. Well, I didn't think so. I, I mean, uh, I think he enjoys the game. Yes, she doesn't, and this is part of the game. Yes, absolutely. It's part of the um, hunt and chase. But uh, so you, you don't think he knows that that she's underneath? Uh, at least in this viewing, I didn't. I didn't assume. Okay. I didn't make that assumption. Okay. Um, but uh, it was one of those things that the scene was clearly asking you whether or not uh, they're doing the whole hunter prey sequence. Right. But it's too early in the movie for us to be scared, and uh, for her, I think, and uh, I don't think they're going to pull a psycho at, at this point, and okay. we're going to suddenly change characters. So, just through where we are in the narrative, it's mm-hmm. just too early for one or the other to mm-hmm. destroy the other, right? Yeah. Um, we were talking too about how crazily different the entire world seems to be in 1978. Yeah. It's not unrecognizable, but it almost seems like a cruel satire of itself at times. Yeah. The workplace behavior of everyone is terrible. (laughs) And it's just played as common. This is how shit is. Yeah, the two women should get an award for just surviving the sheer amount of sexual harassment that... Goes on they in the laugh worst, yeah. and shrug off. It's like those are just men, but whoo! First day she's there, yeah. she's hit on by this guy. He asks her out. She yeah. says no fairly politely, and yeah. he basically lets her know. Well, I'm gonna bug you about because this I until always it get happens, right? what I want. I get what I want. Yeah, uh, the Adrian Barbeau character, who I I believe was uh, either engaged to or about to become engaged to John Carpenter, uh, she plays. Yeah. The lesbian character. Just, yes. And she <laughs> the tokenism feels, is very funny. <laughs> she feels it's very necessary to remind everybody that she's a lesbian. Lesbian, lesbian as here. As possible. Lesbian Yeah, I know. And at the time, you didn't see this character that often, so it was like kind of nice that there was any kind of inclusion and mention of it, but it, it is handled sloppily <laughs> they Maybe. even have they even have this scene I'm so glad we could be friends I mean I know I'm a lesbian and, and when I, it's just it's so bad social conventions dictate that yeah, we're not I allowed know. to be friends with our different so, sexuality yeah, I know but as I keep on saying at the time they meant well. inclusion I, I, writer yeah. I get it and she is the lesbian character who reminds us that she's a lesbian throughout the movie Over. and she gets killed it's like <laughs> every single horror movie fail cliche convention about you know homosexual yeah. characters yeah. yeah but it was 1978 I get it and as the movie keeps reminding us it was a very fucking different time <laughs> yeah like really <laughs> There was this great article I read explaining about, you know, trying to understand, like, the Me Too movement and all the sort of sexual harassment, but, you know, getting it through to guys. And he said, imagine living in a society where everyone wants to punch you in the balls. <laughs> and I always thought that's a great sort of mentality, metaphor, metaphor for how to sort of explain it for, you know, men, you know, what's it like being a woman in a very dominant you know, hierarchy world, um, patriarchal world, if yeah. you will. And if you stop and you think about it, like the journey of these two women, take the whole, even incorporating like the stalker, it's like a lot of these, a lot of the guys in this movie really want to sleep with these women and behave badly towards them. All of the men are stalkers to some degree. Degree, yeah. This guy is just taking it to some next level bullshit. So can you imagine if, you you know, the whole society is like wanting to like punch you right in the groin area? Yeah. They would be scared to go outside. Exactly. Uh, 
it's it, it, it is interesting, and it is interesting looking at it from where we are now. Because yeah. none of this stuff I don't think would occur to you if you were watching it when it aired on television. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, different time, different social morales. I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's also interesting because at the time there was no uh, law about stalking specifically. There was yeah. no way to deal with a stalker. This was loosely based off a true story, and so yeah. yeah. In Chicago or something, I think. Yeah. But uh, if you had this dude who was following you around everywhere yeah. and you went to the police and you said, this dude's following me everywhere, they'd basically say, I don't tell you, lady, it's a free country. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Boys will be boys. Um, and it's just going to escalate and escalate and sooner or later it's going to get ugly and the police aren't going to show up except to draw a chalk line around your fucking corpse, right? Like, <laughs> well, hey, we should have done something then. It almost Let's makes learn me want to like, yeah. set a movie in the 70s to explore the helplessness of that scenario. Because, yes. And again, when you watch that in the in 78, you just accepted it as the status quo. It's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. And yeah. then I go back again to my love for Carpenter because yeah. you and I have done some pretty deep yeah. dick Carpenter stuff here. So, uh, uh, if, I, if I could, I have a statue to my belly. <laughs> we like the we like Carpenter um, because it's on television. Yeah. You can tell that the movie wants to have nudity, but they show a lot of lady back because that's all they can get away with, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that the movie wants to be a little bit more violent than it is. Mm -hmm. So how does he get around it? When the Agent Bo character is killed, we see it at a great distance. Mm Mm-hmm. Which for us, because we like that gay character, (laughs) makes it kind of worse. So you got to fill in the blanks. Yeah. He's going to do that again when we come to Halloween. Like you mentioned, uh, when we see that the killer blows past her in the background inside the apartment. He's in the apartment. Mm-hmm. We know it. She doesn't. Yeah. The next movie, Michael Meyer wake, wakes up and he's behind Laurie Strode and he's alive and he's right there. But she doesn't say again. Uh, the groundwork is here. Yeah. So if you're not going to get behind the very familiar slasher movie, there's nothing about the stalker part of me, not slasher, stalker movie, there's nothing about this that's going to surprise you. Yeah. She makes a friend, the friend dies. There's a climactic fight. How does the killer die? Take a guess. It's set in a high rise. He's thrown He falls to the... his death. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, so if, if you get off on watching that kind of movie, this is another one of them. I watch it for that. If you like Carpenter, it's a really worth. Good, really good, to, worth. good to see Charlie Cyphers in this movie as yeah, well. Yeah, his regular player in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, a lot of these calling cards that we'll see from yeah. Carpenter. It's weird, and uh, I think it's because it was made for TV that they just delegate it. If you're the director, that's a big enough job. The Carpenter score is missing here. And that kind of stands out just because yeah. it's such a big part of the Carpenter aesthetic. I know he didn't score all of his movies, but most of them. That's one of the sort of attributes of yeah, the, and, you know, the Carpenter. There's that specific sound. And that is missing here, but yeah. it feels Carpenter if it doesn't sound Carpenter. And yeah. that's good enough for me. Because someone's watching me. <laughs>
Well, it wasn't easy, but <laughs> what we got through this episode has been the there's been a lot of strange obstacles. Like, not that there's been anything other than ourselves getting in our way here. But yeah, it's like, no, it's 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 been a frustrating process. It I'll, feels like we're a couple of novice podcasters, and this is like our first kick in the can. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's not. So I think that not only did we do service to these movies, but we somehow kind of started to emulate them through our performance here. So. I'd be curious to see how this is when we listen to this. It's not our best I'm almost, work. I'm almost afraid, even. <laughs> it's not our best work, but I bet you it'll make me laugh. <laughs> and if this sucked balls, I apologize, you guys. <laughs> I'm, see, I'm more disapp- disappointed in myself. Uh, I, I felt like I didn't bring my A game, so... Uh, I don't know. So it's a I don't strange know. mixed bag of movies. It's yet another director. And it's a strange mixed bag of an episode. So. And uh, yeah, strange directors, strange movies, strange mix. What was your least favorite of this collection, and why? Well, I don't think it's going to be a shock that uh, the the Wes Craven task terrible tastic <laughs> deadly friend is at number six. I'm. I, it's not. It's not Wes's fault. It's. It's just you know the producers they got scared and they created a th- thematic mess of a movie. I do sort of think though that this thing was doomed from the, the start. Because mm. it may look good on paper, but oh, the execution of it. Oh, and that Anne Ramsey basketball scene. <laughs> Perfection. Perfection. Not but, enough to recommend that to anybody. Oh, I, I, you know what? <laughs> I'm gonna say even I'm BB. So, anyways, never six deadly friend. This is where I think uh, this is going to be, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I'm going to put number five, I Have the Hand by Oliver Stone. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, it's a fascinating movie, and I know um, it, it, it had just a ludicrous idea. Uh, I was thinking of maybe putting Dementia 13 in this, but uh, I don't know. It's good. Okay. Number five, I have number five, The Hand. I have number four, I have Dementia 13. Uh, I sort of went over with the charm of it. I mean, I know it's not a good movie, and I, I and I do sort of think I was in the right mood to sort of see this thing. It's a movie uh, nerd movie. I yeah, think. yeah. I, I do love the setup though. Yeah, great setup. At number three, I have Piranha Two. Uh, once again, a movie so bad it's good. Um, I hesitate to say directed by James Cameron. It's more uh, witnessed by Asimo. Whatever his name. I'm not going to start this again. <laughs> You're fired. You're fired, okay? I just I can't speak Italian, all right? It's my Western dwang. Don't judge me. <laughs> number three, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Now, number two, Someone's Watching Me. This is Baby Carpenter, but... I think it's really well made. If you can get past the whole it's made for TV kind of uh, production values of it, I thought it was you know a pretty compelling story. Yeah. And at number one, I have The Company of Wolves, a very interesting horror tale, a horror fable, if you will. Right. I often thought the Red Riding Hood story would be a, could, could great, make a great werewolf movie, but time's proven me wrong. <laughs> they keep trying. They keep trying. Bad. But anyways, the very interesting and uh, thematic... The Company of Wolves. Controversial, unpopular opinion that you'll likely disagree with. Sure. You don't like the movie as much as I do. Yeah. The best modern take on Red Riding Hood. Freeway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, it's surprisingly different lists, but I don't think we're going to, like, fight about this. Okay. (laughs) Because, like, it's hard to get too passionate. Yeah. But we're definitely going to agree at the bottom. Okay. 
Deadly Friend is not the case of a movie that is so bad it's good. Yeah. It's so bad that I'm embarrassed for everybody involved. Yeah. It's one of these movies that probably shouldn't have made the transition from VHS to DVD. Like, the fact that Wes Craven made it is the only reason it's still in circulation. It is one of the worst movies I've ever reviewed for this podcast. Really? I am... I Especially by a serious director, anyway. Yeah, like, it's... It, it's, it's awful. Yeah. It's not so bad, it's good. I know that Anne Rams his head explodes when it gets hit by a basketball. Yeah. But that's three seconds of this 92-minute movie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard not worth it. to take. Go to YouTube, you can find the scene if you want. Yeah. But yes, number six, easily, with no real competition, a wide lead in the bottom of Deadly Friend. Yeah. But I did put Dementia 13 in yeah. fifth place. Interesting, I wonder if you would. Even at... 75 minutes mm. it felt like a little bit like homework more than a lot of the other movies did just okay by the time i got to it again i think it's a nerdy film movie it's like this is what francis ford coppola looked like in 63 i was taken in by the first sort of opening story and how it connected with the crazy family so and it does have that sort of cheesy slasher aesthetic yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, it's Harsh, but tame by today's standards. But at the time we came in, it was probably considered kind of rough. Shocker. You're seeing women in their underwear and they're getting killed by axes. Yeah. But today, no. In fourth place, Oliver Stone's The Hand. This is where I, yeah. Um, yeah, they play it straight-faced, but it's ludicrous. Mm-hmm. It kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. It's just at war with itself. Yeah. But uh, they tried. So... Um, Again, if you're a fan of Oliver Stone and you want to see what an Oliver Stone quote horror movie looks like, then why not? Um, all the way in third place, which seems artificially high, Piranha 2, The Spawning. Not because I think it's such a great movie, but because I just enjoy the sleazy aesthetic of it and the, just the goofy awkwardness of yeah. it. And because it's a killer fish movie. You're, artic- you're articulating it better than I did, yeah. It, it, it's just more to my... I, I, I like what this movie wants to be. Yes. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's the kind of movie that doesn't really get made anymore unless it's like a, a statement on it. Or a, well, Cameron a, once said it's the best flying fish movie ever. I have to agree. <laughs> I haven't seen a better one. Yeah. Um, I put Company of Wolves in second place. Interesting. Um, just because I, it, it, it falls somewhere between aesthetic brilliance and interpretive nightmare like I just like it's about everything and nothing and it's interesting and it's sort of it's a little bit all over the place but hard to forget but forgettable <laughs> like it's it's there's all sorts I, of I, I like the big here. swings they were, they were taking mm-hmm. and it's uh, to me I sort of took it as a more not meta metaphilosophical horror movie that you know they're talking of mm-hmm. really the evil is toxic masculinity it's the nicest looking most ambitious of the movies that yeah. i think we've talked about but the hardcore john carpenter fanboy in me kind of got off of some of the inside baseball mm-hmm. that i saw in in someone's watching me mm-hmm. and as a fan of carpenter mm-hmm. like i could really get more out of the movie than i think somebody who was just watching it as a straight stalker movie would it would you be got some carpenter prejudice man. exactly yeah no, to anyone that. else in the world it's another fairly industry standard stalker movie mm-hmm. to a carpenter fan we sort of see him honing his craft yep. and about to launch 
on one of the best sort of genre film careers that I can think of. Yep. Who competes with Carpenter? I put him in number one. Yeah. For the record, it was a near thing. Yeah. No, no. And then I agree I with you. I don't think we're fight. Like, no, no. I think like our are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess they're actually weirdly close. It's interesting because like, like four and five, I could have gone either way. So right. a lot of ways. So our list almost would have the same. Yeah. But you put Company Bulls at number two. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, and if you're a werewolf person, the boozies of the world out there. Right? Boozy would totally do this movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you want to see a cool, if you'll watch a movie because it's got an awesome werewolf in it. Yeah. For fucking sure. Check it out, Boozy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting, interesting episode. Strange movies. Yeah. <laughs> if they were a superhero scene, the super team, they'd be the unessentials, right? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, thank you, you movie nerds out there, for bearing with us through yeah. this episode. And I'm sorry if we were both a little bit broken today, but I guess we're... Broken a, is such a harsh, a, dramatic word. We're in a weird headspace, and it's infected the podcast, and for good or ill, here it is. Oh, I just want to say one last thing. Is it Jurgens is his name? Oh, yes, Eric Jurgens. Yeah, suck it, Jurgens. You're not getting the crown. <laughs> <laughs> That's so rude of me. Oh. Right in the feelings. I know. I love right you. I love Jurgens. It's just great. <laughs> You're just not getting this crown. <laughs> Here endeth the lesson on the inessential director masterclass. I mean, there was value to be had in watching these movies, but it's definitely for us real hardcore cineasts. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you continue to listen to Rank and Review. Send me your feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca because I'm from Canada. And if you enjoy this podcast, consider checking out the Terror Table Podcast. They're another group that works within my community, and I think they have a great, great show. So please check them out. As always, I'm your host, Brandon. As always, I am your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. And thank you so much for listening to my podcast.